joining us today on, online. We are going to continue our series that we started last week. We're only two episodes into this, and the series is called The Classics, Seeing the Old Through the New. Last week, if you remember, we spoke on a classic story called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Fiery Furnace. And this week, we're going to talk about maybe even a more classic story, which is Noah's Ark. So if you have your Bibles, join us in Genesis chapter 6. We're actually going to read quite a, quite a big amount of Scripture today because I want us to see the entire account of Noah open up to us. And this is going to be a classic story. This is going to be one that we're very familiar with. But what we want to do is we want to look at this story through the lens of the Old, uh, excuse me, the lens of the New Testament. So we are, like last week, going to look at a parallel that the New Testament brings out that parallels this story from Noah's Ark quite well. And the passage we're going to look at today is Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, verse 17. So a lot of text today. But before we get to the scripture, as I usually do, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you ever invest in something important? Did you ever invest in something important? Well, I may have told this story before, but I think it's been a while. When I think about investment, I think about the things in my life that are most important to me. And right at the top of that list is my wife and my children. But my wife is at the top of that list, and I'm going to share a story from about uh, 11 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, actually. When I was dating Janine, I finally understood what it was to love someone to such a degree that I said in my mind, I think I want to marry this girl. And so I remember thinking through that process and never having those feelings before and going, what do I do with this? And I didn't really know, um, I didn't have any experience in thinking about marriage or anything like that. But the first thing that came to my mind is, well, I need to talk to her dad. I need to make sure that he's okay with me. And he was, thankfully. Uh, but second of all, I need to think about purchasing a ring. Janine and I had actually talked about marriage, so it wasn't going to surprise her greatly. But I needed to think about purchasing a ring for my wife. And as soon as I thought about doing that process, I was very overwhelmed. Because I had never bought anything that big or that important. But... I wanted to get my wife a ring that matched my love for her, that matched her value to me. And so I really wanted to be careful with getting her the proper ring. So maybe you guys remember this story, but I actually went to probably a half a dozen jewelry stores to try and find the best ring that I could within my budget. I wasn't going to get her the most expensive ring, but I wanted to get her the best ring, something she would value for the rest of her life. So I was actually looking for an investment in an engagement ring. So Janine, I asked Janine, and she kind of gave me a starting point of something she was looking for, a style of ring. And so I kind of ran with that. And I went to a few jewelry stores, and I was, I was probably very annoying to the ladies who were working there because I kept asking them to bring all these rings out for me. I wanted to see them right up in front of my face. And so I asked every jewelry store worker, worker about um, if I could see like six to eight to ten rings. And they were very kind about it. They were bringing ring after ring out so that I could see them. And, and I remember going to this one jewelry store at the mall. And I found a ring that I thought was, was the perfect ring. It was, it was brilliant. It was gorgeous. It, would, it, had that, it had that it factor. And I found this ring and I said, this is the ring. I think this is the ring. So I told the lady, I think I found the one I actually want. And she said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I think I am sure. Because she had been with me for probably 45 minutes at that point. And I said, I think this is the ring. So she said, well, I'm going I'm to try to get you, you know, set up for credit and things like that. And let me go do some of that. And while she was back there, I actually, I'm a chronic second guesser. So I started to think in my mind, well, I don't know if I've actually looked at every ring at the jewelry store across the hallway in the mall. 
I had been there before, but I didn't really look carefully. So I said, well, before I actually dive into this massive purchase, let me go over there and make sure that I don't find something better. So I actually went to the rival jewelry store across the hallway there. <laughs> and this is, this is where the story kind of has an interesting turn because I found a ring, at least in the moment, that I thought, oh, wait, this one's actually better. I found a better ring. And now I don't know what to do because I told the lady at the other store that I wanted that ring. And she was kind of getting me set up and I kind of ducked out while she was doing that. And now I'm telling this new lady that I think I want this ring. And I'm, I'm very trapped. I don't know what to do. I handled this very poorly, but now I'm trapped. And I told this lady, yes, this is the ring I want. Now I've decided on this ring. This ring trumps the other ring. I want this ring. And she said, okay, I'll get you set up for credit. Let me get all these things in order. So she went on the phone and started getting me all set up for credit and things like that. And <laughs> this is very shameful. But while she was doing that, I second-guessed again. And I, I flip-flopped in my mind back to the other ring. And I was going to wait and tell her, and I was going to you know, kind of flag her down while she was on the phone and say, hey, lady, I don't really want the ring. Thanks anyways. But she had her back turned, me, turned to me, and she was waiting on the, on the phone to talk to someone. And I couldn't get her attention. And a few minutes went by, and then it went to like 10 minutes, and then it went to like 15 minutes. And I'm thinking in my mind, I don't want this ring now. I've made up my mind. I want the other ring. So I actually, this is incredibly shameful, but I actually left while she's on the phone trying to get me credit and stuff like that. And I went back to the other jewelry store and I said to the lady, I want the ring. I want the ring. I'm ready to buy it. And she goes, okay, I got it. You're all set. And so she ringed me out. I, I got the ring. I got it. I was set. I was like thrilled going, man, this is, this is the ring I want. But the other lady at the other jewelry store had finally finished her phone call and I could see her from the other jewelry store and she's looking for me. She's like looking for me going, where did that guy go? And now this is the most shameful thing I remember doing. I was actually ducking behind some of the display things because I didn't want her to see me. I didn't want that interaction going, hey, what happened? And so <laughs> I have the ring that I bought. I'm, in, I'm, I'm waiting for this lady to sort of get out of my field of vision. And uh, I finally got the ring. The lady eventually ducked back into her store and I kind of snuck out the jewelry store, left and had my ring. The reason I share that story is because I wanted to get the right ring. And I know it's very shameful what I did, but I got the ring in my mind that Janine would find very special. And I gave the ring to Janine. I put it on her finger. She said yes to me. The rest is history. And I consider that ring that I got Janine a great investment because it equated a relationship with my wife in marriage. Did you ever invest in something important? And that's what we're going to look at today is an investment. There's a man that we are all familiar with. His name is Noah. And he's going to invest his time, his energy, and his focus in something for a very long time. If you have your Bibles, join me in Genesis chapter 6. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 6. Then we're going to pause and mention a few things. And then we'll eventually get back to the text. But let's look at Genesis chapter 6 and read the entire chapter. This is what it says. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now I'm going to pause here just to mention this. What this means is that the Israelites were marrying non-Israelites. God's people were finding non-God's people attractive and were intermarrying with these people. So that's what God is seeing taking place. They're seeing the Israelites finding the ladies, the women of the non-Israelites attractive and they're, they're marrying each other. And in verse 3 it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide 
in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, who were men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive, and take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Now, again, this is a very familiar story to us, but I want to draw some things out from this. Chapter 6, that kind of sets the stage for everything is going on. I want to ask you another question. What would you do if something you created did the exact opposite of what you created it to do? Consider that question. If you created something, if you invented something or created something with your hands, and that thing that you created did the opposite of what you created it to do, I couldn't think of a great illustration. The only illustration I could think of is imagine making a back scratcher, okay, to scratch your back and relieve your, your tension on your back. And for some reason, every time you tried to use it, it tried to stab you in the eye. It tried to poke your eye out. It's a dumb illustration. And I'm laughing for everybody, even if you're not laughing. But imagine if you created something and the thing that you created it to do, it didn't do that, but it did something to harm you. What would you do with that thing? Well, you'd have a couple options. You could either destroy it, or you could fix it, try to fix it, and save that thing. I remember one year, uh, I don't know if you guys are into this, but one year I got the flu vaccine, which is very, um, very on par with what's going on right now. I got the flu vaccine one year, and I thought that was important. The flu seemed to be a bad one that year, and I remember getting the flu vaccine, 
And here's the irony. That's the year I got the flu. The year I got the flu vaccine is the year I got the flu. And I thought how ironic that is. But sometimes that happens in life, right? Sometimes the thing you get does the opposite of what you intended to do. And God was in this predicament at least twice that we know of. That something that he created, someone that he created, was created to glorify him, and they kept dishonoring him. He, they were created to glorify him, and they kept dishonoring him. And that's what we find here in Genesis chapter 6. And I want you to try to wrap your minds around the fact that God regretted making us. Because that's what it says. Listen to this again. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. How bad and how broken must we have been for God to consider us almost not worth his time and not worth his love. That's one of the most shocking portions of all of Scripture, that God said, I regret making man because man is so evil. Man is so wicked. Man is so corrupted. And you can tell that there's a tension here between God's desire to stand for his holiness, which is really important to God. It might not be as important to us, but God's holiness means everything to him. And there's a tension between God wanting to stand for his holiness and destroy the wicked people upon the earth versus his great love for his creation. That's a tension. That's a dilemma. And that's a very intense dilemma that God had. But we have to remember all of Scripture, and that's the point of doing this lesson, is so that we can look at the entire context of Scripture, because it says in a book that we studied several weeks ago in 1 John 4, that God is love. That God is love. It says anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And since God is love, God did or does what he often does. He acts with patience and long-suffering towards his people, towards his creation, when they're living sinfully. And he offers us a chance at repentance. He offers us a chance at restoration and salvation because God is love. And so God has in a dilemma here. But I want to read another passage to you from 2 Peter 3.9. Listen to what this one says. It says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I want you to notice that as we begin this story, is that God doesn't want his people to die. God doesn't want his people to perish. God doesn't want to destroy his creation. But you can tell at this point in the story, things are so bad, so wicked, that God's patience had run out. And I don't know where that starts and stops, and I don't really want to know where God's patience runs out, but it had run out. God was ready and willing to destroy the people because of how wicked they were. Listen to what it says in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, isn't that an incredible description of how mankind is seen in the eyes of God at this time? The every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And you could tell that God's patience had run out. He was so fed up with mankind that he had come to a decision that he was going to destroy the earth and everyone upon it. And guys, this could have been the end of mankind as we know it. I mean, earnestly. This could have been the end of mankind. Not like the coronavirus, okay? The coronavirus, I'm going to mention that a couple times today, but the coronavirus is eventually going to go away, okay? Probably some people will die, but most of us will survive, and it's not going to be the end of mankind. We're all going to survive, most of us. But I want you to think of those, those movies where it depicts the end of the world. We have tons of those movies. People are intrigued by that idea. Maybe it's a virus or whatever, an alien attacks us. But the world ends, or mankind is threatened to end. Well, actually, in this story, this is the closest we ever got to the end of the world. Mankind was almost wiped out entirely. But thankfully, and this is where our story is glorified today, thankfully there was a righteous man on the face of the earth, and his name was Noah. And it said, Noah found found favor in the eyes of God. And remember, our God's nature is that he is unwilling to punish the righteous along with the wicked because he is just. God is perfectly just. And Noah Noah represented to God that although Noah was in the stark minority, Noah represented to God that righteousness and a desire to love and serve God still existed upon the earth. And God is just. God is perfectly just. He's never going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And right, Noah was righteous in God's eyes. He found favor in God's eyes. But a little footnote here, a little thing to put an asterisk next to is, it might be tempting to think that Noah was somehow righteous on his own when you look at this story. But when you take the entire context of God's word, if you think that way, that would actually fly in the face of what the rest of the word of God tells us, because it tells us that none are righteous in Romans. None are righteous on their own and that all are in need of salvation. But it says Noah was righteous in comparison to everyone that lived upon the earth. And I think that's the way we make sense of Noah is that he didn't go the rest, he didn't go the way the rest of mankind went. Noah didn't willfully and rebelliously chase after wickedness like the rest of mankind. And that separated Noah from the others in his desire to love and serve God. But we have to remember this about Noah, that even Noah needs the righteousness of Jesus. Even Noah needs God's forgiveness, doesn't he? And even Noah needed to be saved. I know this because I know what all of Scripture says, and there's another character in the New Testament. His name is Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. And I just want to read the first couple verses of Acts chapter 10, how it describes Cornelius. Listen to the way it describes Cornelius and think about, think about Noah. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was well known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, the way that it describes Cornelius is that Cornelius is a godly man, or so it seems when when you read the first two verses of Acts chapter 10, that maybe Cornelius is a righteous man on his own. But if you read the rest of Acts chapter 10, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes to Peter and says to Peter, you need to take the gospel, the message of the gospel, to Cornelius and his household. Because although Cornelius is different, 
than the rest of mankind in the sense that he doesn't willfully and rebelliously chase after wickedness and he desires to serve God, even Cornelius is not righteous on his own. Cornelius needs the gospel. So what he does is he tells Peter in a vision to take the message of the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius is the first Gentile that comes to Christ. But Peter understands that the Holy Spirit means what he says and he takes the message of the gospel to Cornelius and it says that Cornelius and his entire household trusted in Jesus Christ that day. But I think that's how we make sense of Noah. It's not, not that Noah is righteous on his own, but that he was different from every part of mankind, but in the sense that he still needed to be saved from God. He still needed God's forgiveness and he still needed Jesus' righteousness. But here we find that God is ready to destroy all the people, all the wicked people on the earth. But it says in verse 13 and 14, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Wow, yikes, right? I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Can you imagine God saying that about your people, about your generation? I'm fed up. I'm determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And he says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. See, we have to understand something about God is that God detests sin. And yes, God is love and we need to keep that tension there. Both of those things are true in scripture that God is love, but at the same time, he detests sin. And we find both in this passage, we find both in this account, is that God is willing to help save the people who love him, but at the same time, those who are walking in wickedness and sinfulness and will not repent are in hot water with God. But Noah found favor in God's eyes, God's eyes. so God decided to send an agent of salvation to mankind through his servant Noah. Noah was to make an ark, a massive boat that could withstand the coming flood. This ark was supposed to house Noah and his seven family members, as well as house two representations of every animal on the face of the earth. And this ark was going to be massive. It was going to be very intricate. It had to be built according to precise measurements, and it was going to take a very, very long time to build. Most scholars and theologians think it took somewhere between 100 and 120 years for Noah and his family to build this ark. I don't know if you've ever seen the ark exhibit in Kentucky. I haven't been there myself, but I've seen pictures of it, and I've seen that it's built to scale. It's built according to the dimensions, as much as they can tell, in Scripture, and it's enormous. It's huge, and I'm sure it took a lot, lot less time to build it with the technology that we have today. But I want you to consider Noah giving, being given this task, that he had to build an ark for this long of a period, and it had to be perfectly according to the instructions that God gave him. Did you ever have a long week at work? Did you ever have a long week at school? I want you to picture Noah day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, building this ark. And what's interesting to me is that Noah got to work building the ark exactly according to the instructions that God gave him. That is a very important detail for our story today, okay? That Noah built the ark exactly according to the instructions that the Lord gave him. That's a detail that I think is often hidden from this story, but it's very important for what we want to look at today. And after many, many years, maybe a hundred years or so, 
of Noah and his family faithfully and meticulously building the ark and collecting the animals. And I want you to imagine what that must have been like, collecting all of these animals. I don't know how long that took, but I can only imagine what that must have been like for Noah to try to collect these animals two by two and get them into the ark. But after he did so, after he built the ark, after he collected all of the animals, after doing everything that the Lord God had commanded him, the ark was finally completed. And now I want to pick up our reading in chapter 7 of Genesis 6. We're going to read this entire chapter as well, because the story continues. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 6, Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood, became, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So here the story continues. Noah was instructed to go inside of the ark with his family and the many, many pairs of animals that the Lord instructed him to bring with him. And in verse 5 it says, once again, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Don't you want that legacy? 
Don't you want that legacy to be set about you on this side and definitely in heaven that you did everything according to how God commanded you? And that's an amazing legacy that Noah has that we can look back on. What amazing thing it is to say about someone that they did everything according to how the Lord instructed him to do. And this obviously is a very difficult and painstaking task that Noah was called to. 100 years of building an ark and collecting all of these animals and then making the animals come into the ark? Have you ever been called to do anything that difficult? And the answer is, of course, you have not. If God says to you, go share the gospel with a neighbor or a family member that needs it, that is far and well below anything that Noah was called to here. Noah is called to build an ark for a hundred years and get all of those sets of animals into the ark. And I can't imagine what that must have been like. I have enough trouble getting six kids into a minivan. That's difficult for me and my wife to get six kids collected into a minivan. Imagine getting that many animals collected and into the ark after building an ark for a hundred and some years. But it said, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Wow, what a legacy. And then it says the door was shut. God shut the door and the rain began to fall. And the door being shut is another interesting detail that we need to remember in our minds. The door was shut and the rain began to fall. And for 40 days and 40 nights, it rained very hard upon the earth. And the fountains below the sea opened up and it began to entirely and completely flood the world. The water became so great that it covered all the mountaintops, the peaks of the mountaintops. And I want you to consider how much water that must have been. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high. 29,000 feet high. And all the mountaintops were covered with water. I want you to imagine how much water was upon the earth. God completely and entirely flooded the earth because he was going to destroy everything that was wicked. And Noah and his family and all the animals they collected were kept safe from the deluge in the ark. But everyone and everything outside of the ark perished. This is what it says once again in verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. This story at its core is not about a big storm. At its core, this story is not about a flood. This story is about salvation and destruction. That's what this story is about at its core. Salvation and and destruction. And we need to notice that. That's important. Nothing outside of the ark remained or continued to live, and I'll stress it, nothing. Nothing continued to live except what was inside the ark. I'll say it one more time. Nothing outside of the ark continued to live. And the waters were upon the earth higher than the mountaintops for 150 straight Days. Now, that is certainly a long time to be inside of a boat with tons of loud and stinky animals, is it not? That's a long time. And it would be tempting to think that after such a long period, maybe God forgot about Noah and his family. 
Maybe that perhaps the water was never going to subside. Wouldn't that be an honest temptation, an honest thing to think after 150 straight days in the ark? And maybe you're thinking that right now as this thing just kind of got really big. Is the coronavirus ever going away? Is it ever going to get back to normal? Are we ever going to get hand sanitizer back and toilet paper back? Are we ever going to be able to watch sports again or cough without having people run the other direction? Is life ever going to get back to normal? For me, it already seems long. But I have to imagine Noah being trapped inside this ark for such a long time with all of these animals. It would have been tempting to think that maybe God had forgotten about Noah. That maybe the waters would never subside. But I want you to listen to the first verse of Genesis chapter 8 because Noah was actually in this ark for a year. But the first verse of Genesis chapter 8 says this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock, livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. Our God keeps his promises every single time. Amen? Our God always always keeps his promises. He does not forget us. He will not neglect us. This thing that is going on in our nation right now is a little scary and unpredictable. And it's tempting to think, where is God? Where is he? How could he let such a thing happen? How could he let such a thing take place? You know, churches today are not gathering together. We have to do live streaming like this. Where is God? Maybe it's tempting to think that. But we have to remember, God never, ever neglects his people. He never forgets his promises. He never looks the other direction. God is always watching out for us. And that's helpful to know in this crisis that we currently have. But we've got to finish the story. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 8, and we're going to read the rest of the account. Another long portion of scripture, but it's important. Genesis 8, we're actually going to bleed into Genesis 9 and go to verse 17. Listen to what it says. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on, on the altar unto the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now let's go to verse, uh, chapter 9 and read on to verse 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature. That is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the rain finally stops. The water finally begins to subside, and Noah waits to see the proper time when he and his family should leave the ark. The ark eventually comes to rest on a mountain called Ararat, and after sending out a dove to see if the waters had completely subsided, and after the dove eventually didn't return to Noah, he knew it was finally time to come out of the ark. So God told his family to come out from the ark and to bring all the animals with them. So Noah once again obeyed the word of the Lord. He and his family came out of the ark. And the very first thing Noah does when he sets foot on dry ground is not to yell something like, Ugh, finally! Or, never again, Lord, don't ever ask me to do anything like that again. No! The first thing Noah does is he sacrifices some of the clean animals on an altar unto the Lord. You see, Noah truly loved the Lord, didn't he? Isn't that evident? 
it's evident that Noah truly loves the Lord. And basically with his sacrifice, what he's, his sacrifice, what Noah is saying to God is, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your salvation. I know we could have perished in the flood as well, but you allowed us to make this ark. You allowed us to get in the ark. You protected us from the flood. God, thank you. Thank you for your salvation. And it says the Lord was very pleased with Noah's sacrifice. And that God decides to make a covenant with mankind that as long as the earth remains, God is never going to destroy all flesh again. The Lord considers any amount of righteousness being worth waiting for. And I find that interesting about our Lord. He's considering any amount of righteousness that he can get from this earth, get from his people, worth being patient for. And in chapter 9, God stamps his promise and his covenant with Noah and the rest of mankind by putting a rainbow in the clouds as a sign in remembrance that God will never again destroy mankind as long as the earth remains. You see, the world can't steal the rainbow from us, can they? The rainbow that God put in the clouds is a representation that God keeps his promises. That's what the rainbow means, and that's what the rainbow should always mean. God keeps his promises. Now, guys, that's the story of Noah's Ark, and this is an amazing story on its own. We could gain so much just from looking at this one tale, this one story, and I know it's probably just a reminder of you today of what this story means, but before we close today, I want to apply this story by looking at a parallel in the New Testament. A parallel of the story happens in the New Testament. And this parallel is a, excuse me, the story of Noah's Ark is a foreshadowing of the parallel we want to look at here. Because this parallel we're going to look at is one of the most profound parallels in all of Scripture. See, the story of Noah's Ark was a shadow of a coming reality. You maybe want to call it like a movie trailer, okay? The story of Noah's Ark, although impressive on its own, amazing on its own, applicable on its own, it was foreshadowing a much better story, but very similar. And that's the parallel we want to look at today. To set the stage for a parallel, God again sees wickedness and corruption all over the earth. Just like the days of Noah, he sees wickedness and corruption all over the earth, and God again has an intense dilemma on his hands. To either destroy mankind forever, or to offer us a chance at repentance, restoration, and salvation. Now, this dilemma wasn't about destroying all flesh again on the earth because God remembers his covenant that he set with Noah to never flood the earth again, to never destroy all flesh again. So that's not the dilemma that God is dealing with. This dilemma is unfortunately much bigger and much deeper. God had to decide what to do eternally with corrupt mankind, what to do eternally with our wicked souls. Because the earth is cursed and the earth is temporary. What is God to do with the earth? What is God to do with every single person who lives upon the sin-cursed earth? Destroy us? That's an option, as we talked about before. Or fix us and save us? That's the dilemma God had again. And we have to remember that God never changes. The Lord never changes. As he was in the days of Noah, so he is today, which... I'm thankful for, because that means God is still love. God is still patient. God is long-suffering. God never changes. And so once again, what does God do 
destroy us, cast us all in hell. No, what he does is he offers us again a chance at salvation and restoration. And unlike the ark, the salvation of God, this salvation of God was going to be incredibly costly to God. The highest price anyone ever paid for anything was God paying for this opportunity for us to be saved. And maybe you know what we're talking about today. God was going to invest in us first with the greatest cost anyone's ever given towards anything. God was going to send his son to be the savior of mankind. God was going to invest in his people to such a high degree. And the way that he does this is by first of all telling us, just like he told Noah, that a huge, massive storm is coming. This storm is way bigger than Noah's flood. This storm is so much bigger than Noah's flood. You might be able to compare the storm of Noah and the storm of what we're going to look at here in a moment as the difference between the coronavirus that is spreading all over the world and sin, which has completely corrupted every single person upon the earth. Now, the coronavirus is a little scary and a little unpredictable, and we need to hunker down so that it doesn't spread. But sin, unfortunately, has spread to every single person. And the storm, the difference, the contrast between Noah's flood and the coming storm is that significant as well. This coming storm is called the wrath of God. This coming storm is called the wrath of God against sinfulness, or you can call it eternal punishment in hell. This storm is headed directly toward sinners, and it's the perfect storm. And our only chance to avoid this coming storm is to do similar to what Noah had to do. We have to get inside the refuge. God is going to send an agent of salvation just like he did in the days of Noah. Only Noah had to construct the ark. And this agent of salvation that God sends upon the earth is someone that came on his own accord. God's Savior given to mankind this time is not a big boat. It's not a big ark. It's nothing anyone has to construct. Because unlike the flood upon the earth, the storm of God's wrath is going to be an eternal storm. So we don't need an ark that can sustain us for a year from the flood of the water. We need someone who can sustain us for all eternity from God's righteous anger against our sinfulness. And this time, God's Savior is not a big boat. His Savior is His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. And this is important. Jesus is strong enough and sufficient enough to save any and all people that come inside of him through faith. And I'll ask you this question. Do any of us know how big Jesus is? Do we know how big Jesus is? Now, if you've ever looked at space, if you've ever studied space at all or tried to explore space or look at the size of space, how big is space? Space is enormous, isn't it? Space is so big that the more you uh, study space, the more you kind of go mad because it's so big your mind can't comprehend the bigness of space. The more you zoom out from Earth and keep zooming out from the Milky Way, and it's just so big and so vast and so spectacular. But the thing about it is that Jesus, it says in Hebrews, holds the world and the universe up by the word of his power. Space is so big and so vast 
but Jesus holds the universe up with his word. Jesus is enormous. Jesus is strong. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is sufficient to save all of mankind. You see, in Noah's day, all those who refused or neglected to listen to God and get inside of the ark drowned. All of them. They had a window of opportunity for 100 years to get inside the ark. 100 years to come to their senses and to listen to God's warning and get inside the refuge. And they neglected to. And they refused to. And they did not enter into God's refuge. They did not listen to God's warning and God's salvation. And that's sad. That's a sad part of our tale, is that 99% of the people died because they neglected to listen to God's warning about the storm. But it's just the same now. It is just the same now, only much graver. Everyone who refuses or neglects to listen to God and get inside of Jesus' eternal arms of protection by faith will die. Except this time the death won't be physical and it won't be temporary. Just like the coronavirus, right? The coronavirus is a temporary disease. It's an earthly disease. It's eventually something that's going to go away. But the next death will not. Viruses, diseases, and death on the earth is not the scariest thing. There's a future death. It's something that God calls the second death. And this death is going to be spiritual separation from God, and it's going to be eternal. This next storm that is coming is the biggest storm that's ever come upon mankind. So I want to say it this way. Whatever energy you're giving to your physical life, whatever energy and focus you're giving to your physical life, which should be some, I want you to give a hundred times more energy to your spiritual life. Because the next storm that is coming far surpasses the storm of Noah. See, Noah's family listened to the warning of the Lord and obeyed his exact instructions to build the ark and get inside the ark with all the animals that God told them to collect. And this was a very, very big and very detailed task, wasn't it? It was very, very big for them to say, for God to say to Noah, build the ark this high, this big, for this long, do it exactly according to my instructions, get all of these animals two by two and collect them inside the ark. But they didn't trifle with God. They didn't make their own ark their own way. They didn't make it according to their schedule. They didn't get some animals on the ark. They didn't avoid getting the nasty ones like the snakes and the possums because they didn't like them. They listened to the one who operates the storm and they made sure to obey his every instruction. Why? Why did they do it exactly according to the instructions of the Lord? Because their life was on the line. They couldn't get it wrong. Their life, their salvation was at stake, and they couldn't get it wrong. And this is what we want to focus on for the last few moments here, is that we have not been commanded to build an ark of gopher wood, have we? Or to collect two of every animals. Aren't you thankful? and get them into an ark. But we are called to something that requires the same precise obedience to God's instructions as it required of Noah. The same precise obedience to God's instructions as it required of Noah. And this obedience to these instructions is going to be the difference between our eternal life, excuse me, our eternal death, and our eternal safety.
And our instructions are quite simple. These are our instructions. To listen to and obey our Savior Jesus and his commandments. To listen to and obey our Savior Jesus Christ and his commandments. This is God giving us our instructions today. From the coming storm, from the coming wrath against sins, these are your instructions. People, you must pay attention. This is crucial. Now, being careful not to demean our Lord, Jesus is a metaphor for a modern-day ark. He is. And there are two things that you and I must do to be safe from the coming storm of God's wrath. Number one, we have to believe what God has said and warned us about our sinfulness, our need to be saved. And we have to get inside the refuge of Jesus before this eternal storm comes. Because this storm is going to destroy all those caught in it. God promises us. See, 99% of the people in Noah's day died because they didn't listen to God. 99% of them said, there's no flood coming. I've never seen that much rain. You're ridiculous, Noah. We don't, I don't know why you're building this ark. You, know, you should do something better with your time. It says in the New Testament that the people of that day were eating, they were drinking, they were giving themselves in marriage. They were just living their lives. And then the storm came and the flood killed them all. So the first thing you and I need to do is believe what God has said and warned us about this coming storm. Number two is we need to make sure we build our lives exactly according to how Jesus guides us with the same care, the same detail, and the same faithfulness that Noah displayed. The same care, the same detail, and the same faithfulness that Noah displayed. I want to read you a verse from John 14, 21. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. To neglect to do either of these things is to flirt with eternal death. Can we afford to flirt with a lake of fire? Can we afford to flirt with God's coming eternal storm? Listen to another passage from Matthew 24 concerning this coming storm. In Matthew 24, it says this, starting in verse 36, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as, listen to this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware of the flood, until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see, Jesus is coming soon. And when Jesus comes soon, excuse me, when Jesus comes for the second time upon this earth, he ushers in the storm. God is going to send a storm, and this storm is going to be an eternal storm. But before he does that, he sends Jesus. 
And he says, Jesus, go to that earth, die for the people of mankind, save them from their sins, and protect them forever from this coming storm. And I want you to notice, as another footnote, I want you to notice how the Lord protects us from God's wrath. This is interesting to me, that how the Lord protects us from the wrath of God is by bringing us close to God. See, God is not our problem. We are not saved from God. We are saved to God. Isn't that interesting? That the scariest thing is to be away from God, is to not have God watching out for you, to not have God protecting you. But when Jesus saves us, he saves us unto God because God isn't our problem. Our sinfulness is our problem. We need to be saved from our sin and we need to be what a term is called reconciled to God, which means brought back together with God and his loving nature. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be close to, is close to God. You see, separation from God because of our sin is our problem. We need God in our lives every single hour. Otherwise, we're on our own. So how do we get ready for Jesus? By making sure we're safe within his refuge. How do we get ready? How are we prepared for this coming storm? Two things. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and turn to him from your sins. He is your refuge. Our sins are the problem and Jesus is our healer and our savior. Go to him. Confess your need for him to save you. Believe that he will save you and be ready to be done with your former sinful lifestyle permanently. Go to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's how you prepare yourself for this coming storm. Be inside the refuge of Jesus. Number two, be ready and willing to obey his every commandment as if they were a vital piece of wood keeping your soul safe from the coming flood. Now, what if Noah forgot a piece? What if he forgot a board? What if Noah neglected one side of the ark and there was a hole There was a board he forgot to put. And when the flood came, what is going to happen? I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the water is going to find its way into the flood and drown Noah, his family, and all the animals. Noah had to build this ark exactly, precisely according to the commandments of the Lord. And this is how we need to be like Noah. This right here is how we need to be like Noah. Noah wanted to serve God. We need to be like Noah that way. Noah believed what God said about the coming storm. We need to be like Noah that way. Noah obeyed God's every word. We need to be like Noah that way. And Noah got inside of God's refuge. We need to be like Noah that way. Noah's teaching us today about investment and preparation. Investment and preparation. What it means to invest and what it means to prepare. And honestly, I think the coronavirus can teach us that as well. The coronavirus is teaching us a few things about what it means to take precautions, right? To take precautions, to go to the store, to get what you need, to stay away from large gatherings, to stay away from people who have, might have the disease. The coronavirus is teaching us about preparations, and that's interesting to me. But just like we said before, something much bigger is coming. Something much, much bigger than what we're dealing with here with the coronavirus which means the preparations for this coming storm need to be that much greater as well. So what? Let's tie this up. Recognize God's love for you. 
to warn you of this coming storm. See, here's the point of this. God doesn't want you to perish. God doesn't want me to perish. God doesn't want to destroy his creation. God loves you and therefore God warns you. God loves you and therefore God warns you. And God is saying today, I'm not lying. The storm is on its way. If there was a spiritual radar, the storm is closing into us. And God is telling us today, prepare, get ready, get inside the refuge. The storm is coming. And I want you to recognize God's love for you to warn you. Because those who tell you the most truth are the ones that love you the most. God is telling you the truth about this coming storm because he doesn't want you separated from him. He wants you with him. And therefore, you need to listen to God and get inside the refuge. Number two, like Noah, don't associate with the wickedness of the world. Be separate from evil. Give yourselves to the will and the glory of God because the world, it's wrong. The world isn't right. If you listen to the media and you don't listen to God's word, you're going to go astray. You're going to listen to the wrong things. You're going to prepare the wrong way or you're going to not prepare at all. For this coming storm, feed your mind with the word of God, not the theories, not the ideals, not the desires of the world. Number three, obey the Lord's written commandments. And I'm going to say it precisely and exactly. And it sounds exhausting, just like Noah must have sounded exhausting to build an ark for a hundred some years. But what's interesting about God's commandments is they boil down to one word, love. All of God's commandments boil down to Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. We have to obey those commandments precisely, exactly, as if these commandments are keeping us safe, because they are. And these two commandments have precise instructions for how to love, because when we search God's word, we find out how to love as God has instructed us to love. And that means we have to feverishly discipline ourselves to study the word of God and then obey it. Do you check CNN? Do you check the news more than you check the word of God? It's a bad recipe. We need to learn what God says about preparation. We need to learn what God says about the coming storm. We need to learn what God says about our very lives. You see, Noah was smart. He was smart. He invested his time, his energy, his focus, his, in, his precise instructions into the building of the ark because the ark was his family's agent of salvation. Noah couldn't trifle with that. To build the ark incorrectly because his life was on the line, the life of his family was on the line. He had to build it exactly the way God taught him to build it. We need to be like Noah. We need to be like Noah. We need to desire to serve and love God. We need to believe what God says about the coming storm. We need to be inside the refuge of Jesus. And we need to obey God's every commandment. There's the parallel. Do exactly what Noah did. Take the understanding of the storm. Take the understanding of the refuge. Take the understanding of your need for the refuge and get inside of Jesus and obey his every commandment. See, the way that um, the story ends with Noah is that God makes a covenant promise. He puts a rainbow in the sky and he says to Noah, every time I see the rainbow, I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember that I'm never going to destroy all flesh again. And Noah remembered that. Every time he saw a rainbow, every time it rained and a rainbow came in the sky, he remembered the covenant promise that God made with him. And that was the whole point. But you see, God made a covenant promise with us as well. It comes from Romans 10 verse 13. 
says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our covenant promise in the New Testament parallel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Eternal safety. I want you to imagine it. Eternal safety. Eternal peace. Eternal hope. Eternal love with God. Eternal closeness with God. Are you going to listen to your God and his instructions to save you? Are you going to invest your time, your energy, your focus into following and obeying the Lord Jesus with your life? If not, I don't like saying it, but make no mistake about it. If you don't, you will perish. You will die along with the sinful world. But if you do listen, if you do obey the Lord, you will be with your loving God forever. You will always be protected with the strong, loving arms of Jesus. Find peace today from that. Find hope today from that. And especially find safety from the fact that Jesus is your refuge from the coming storm. And just as Noah invested in the ark, invest in your Savior, Jesus, today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for what the story of Noah's ark teaches us. Thank you that we can look at the life of Noah and see someone who was smart enough to understand his need for God and God's safety and God's warning. That he didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't shrug it off. He didn't say, oh, I'm not worried about the storm. But he said, if God took the time to warn me, if God took the time to send me these instructions. God must care about me a great deal. God must want my salvation. And I'm going to listen. And I pray we listen to the parallel. Because we don't have to build an ark. And we don't have to collect animals. But what we need to do is devote our very lives to Jesus. And if Jesus says something is important and he tells us to do it, Father, help us to listen. Because what he's doing is he's protecting us from the coming storm. Father, thank you for teaching us this. Thank you for warning us. Help us to be sensible about what is going on in the world. Help us to not be panicked or fear-stricken, but help us to be sensible and to remember that you are on your throne and we can have peace and hope with you if we simply give our lives to Jesus. I pray for the souls who are listening that Jesus would be more important than he was even up to this point and that every single one of us would make sure 100% that we are inside the refuge of Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.